Well, it's, uh, it's an honor to be here and a joy to be with you guys. This is, uh, I really appreciate Desert Springs. I appreciate Ryan and the elders and the work that you guys are doing here in this city. And uh, as he was saying about having like-minded uh, churches is a good thing. Sometimes people do come to me and they say, uh, you know, it's just not a good fit at Crossroads or whatever, and they think, you know, they ask, are there any other churches that, that we should consider? And Desert Springs is always on that list for me to, to tell, you should, you should go and you should worship there and consider if that would be a good fit for you. I appreciate this, this body a lot. I appreciate the leadership that, that uh, this church takes to in the city that there was a vacuum for, I think, a few years ago. And so it's good to see it happening. This morning, we're in Acts chapter 9. I will be preaching from the ESV, so I appreciate uh, this church switching to the ESV for me. Uh, I've been preaching from the ESV as long as it's been around, and I really enjoy it. I think you guys will enjoy it and appreciate it as well. It's a very good translation. Sometimes people say, what's the best translation? And the, the classic answer, good answer, is the one that's in your hand. Is, is a good answer. Uh, but if you're going to be buying a Bible, this is a good way to go. And it does a great job of marrying together accuracy for the original languages along with readability. I think you guys will really appreciate the English Standard Version. But before we look at the Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that He might help us to understand it. Our Father in heaven, we we give you great thanks and praise. You are a God that is constantly moving, constantly doing things, constantly changing people's hearts. I pray that this morning, that as we study your word, that we would uh, not just learn information, Lord, but we might be truly transformed by it. That we might be, be changed into the child of God that you have called us to be. And Father, we pray for the one who teaches, for his sins they are many. And anything that not be your truth, may it fall away never to be thought of again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Since you guys don't know me very well, at least most of you, let me tell you a little story about my youth. I was 12 years old, and I was out riding my bike, and you're... 12 and you're out riding your bike and you get bored and you're just sort of riding around and I was up riding by my grade school. I was in elementary school at the time, 6th grade, and I was out there riding around and happened to see a window was open. I saw that window open and let me tell you something, it wasn't just any window that was open, it was the faculty lounge. I don't know what it was like for you guys when you were kids or if you're a kid now, but the faculty lounge, the faculty room had a certain aura and mystique about it. Well, first of all, you weren't allowed anywhere near it, right? You know, so if you say that to a kid, you're not allowed somewhere that's where they want to go. And that's where we wanted to go. And even when I did some substitute teaching when I was in school and I was told that I could go into the faculty lounge. And I thought, really? Am I really allowed in the faculty lounge? Oh, but that wasn't the only thing. 
The other thing, when you did happen to walk by and you caught a glimpse inside, the things that were in there were glorious. Candy and soda just laid out on tables, free for the taking, it looked like, anyway, to a sixth grader, to me, that's what I saw. So that day, I'm up there, driving around school, and there is that open window to the faculty lounge. Well, I didn't do what you may be thinking I'm going to tell you yet. I first went to my friend's house, and I told him, and another buddy was over there, and I said, you're not going to believe this, I was up at school, and the faculty lounge window was open, and so... There was actually uh, four of us total, and we went back to the school on our, um, on our bikes, and one of us stayed down outside, and the other, uh, while the other three were lifted and hoisted up into the faculty lounge. Uh, once inside, we went for that which we wanted, which was the candy and the soda and and so the one guy that was outside, he's just catching, you know, the, the sun kiss and the uh, Kit Kats are just flying out the window and sun kiss soda, six pack, you know, woo, there it goes. We thought we hit the jackpot. We exited there and headed out and by our school was a wooded area and we called it the woods. <laughs> the woods have since been torn down. Praise the Lord. I mean, you want to welcome trouble? Put a wooded area near an elementary school. <laughs> I want to begin to say the things that were found in there. But we headed straight for the woods and we devoured our booty, right? You know? It was exciting, it was fun. So we thought we got away with something. We thought we were pretty cool. And uh, we did it again. Found another way to get into the school, and, and uh, that was fun and didn't get caught, so we did it again and again. And eventually, one time, I was so used to breaking into the school that I left something in my desk, so I thought, oh, I'll just break in and get it. So I did. Well, so one day, it was during the summertime, school had ended, and a uh, buddy of mine and, and I, we decided we were going to uh, break into the school that night. We were going to spend the night at his house, wait for his kids to go to for his kids. <laughs> That's how my brain works now, right? I can't wait for the kids to go to bed, you know? <laughs> wait for the parents to go to bed. And about 2 a.m., we snuck out and got away with it. No problem. And we went to the school and uh, the way it was set up was that along one edge, there's like all the classrooms were lined up on one side, and then that opened up into like the playground area, courtyard sort of a place. And we uh, entered through one of those classrooms. And the plan was to enter through the classroom and then out of the hall and then have free reign. So we did that. And entered into the classroom, entered into, and uh, the two of them, because it was my buddy and his little brother who was a year younger than us. So he was 11. We were 12, he was 11. 
And those two went left and I went right. They were going to do vandalism. I didn't realize that. That wasn't what interested me. They got in the kitchen and tore up some flour sacks or something. Uh, But I wanted stuff. So for stuff, I went to the office. So I headed over to the office, went in there, was rummaging around, and you find all these supplies, and I thought this was exciting. Eventually, my buddy and his brother showed up, Jason, and uh, he showed up, and Brian, Jason and Brian showed up, and they were going to also gather stuff, and Jason made his little brother Brian take off his shirt, and they loaded it with black markers. All 12-year-old kids need lots of black markers. So he's loading up black markers. But I find, I find a beautiful find, and that is a Polaroid camera. Those of you under the age of 25, a Polaroid camera is uh, you take a picture, and the picture comes out. It's amazing. It's amazing technology, really. <clears throat> Digital cameras, what is that? We had Polaroids. <laughs> Kids, you'll understand. So we, uh, I find this Polaroid camera, and I have a flashlight, but I, I can't really see it that very well. I wanted to take it out in the hallway. I take it out in the hallway where there's this exit sign, and the exit sign gave off enough light that I could see it a little closer. And I'm starting to look at it and mess with it, and then I happen to notice something. The door to the classroom from which we entered into the building was opening. Now, I thought to myself a couple things. First of all, I hope that's somebody else breaking in. (laughs) Or second, we're busted. It was the latter. Next thing I knew, I was staring down the barrel of a gun... And a police officer was yelling at me to get on my face. Later I learned that I had accidentally shined that flashlight in his face and he thought for a moment that somebody was trying to blind him and he almost pulled the trigger. And they began screaming and hollering and cussing at us and the next thing uh, Brian and Jason come running out and Brian's got no shirt on, he throws the shirt down, the markers go everywhere. They handcuffed us. We're laying on our face. They handcuffed our hands behind our back. And we're laying there. We're like, what have we done? They were looking for a fourth person. They had been told that someone saw us enter and they thought they saw a fourth. So they were really getting after us trying to find that fourth, which wasn't there. Eventually they gave up. We went to the police station. But as we were exiting the, the building and we were walking down the hall and we were going into that classroom that we had entered in. And it was then for the first time that I saw the police lights, the squad cars. And the lights were going all over the place and bouncing off the walls. And I was thinking to myself, how did I get here? How did I get to this point? And I'm sure my parents, when I had to call them in the middle of the night and said, come down to the police station and pick me up. They were probably thinking, how did we get here? Because, you know, I don't have the excuse of having a bad childhood. 
I don't have the excuse of, of this absentee father. I don't have the excuse of a broken home. I have no excuses. I grew up in, in a loving family. Good parents. How did I get there? How do we get to that point that we do some of the things that we do? Today we're going to read a story about a guy named Saul of Tarsus. He goes on, he's later named Paul. And that's how you probably know him as Paul, as the one who wrote 13 epistles, you know, half of our New Testament. But at this point, he is Saul of Tarsus and he is a bad, bad man. You see, he is introduced to us. Uh, Saul is introduced to us a couple chapters before as overseeing the death of a very godly man uh, named Stephen. Now, Stephen was an incredible man who loved Jesus. Saul wasn't the one that physically killed Stephen, but he oversaw it. You know, I don't know if Adolf Hitler ever physically killed anyone. I don't know. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But he oversaw the murder of millions. And you might not think in your head of putting Saul and Adolf Hitler together, but you should. Because he was a bad man. What we're going to do with this passage is we're going to work our way through the passage. And we're going to go slow and I'll read something and I'll stop and talk about it for a little while. And then we'll go back to the passage. And my hope, my prayer for you is that as we study this passage, this passage will come alive for you. And that it will feel like you're there. I, I like to call it a living story. It's not just a story, it's living. It's, and you're living in it. So let's work our way through Acts chapter 9. We're going to begin right there in verse 1. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked them for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He was out to get Christians. He thought he was doing the work of God. He was trying to cleanse uh, his religion of this evil way, as they were calling it, the way, these followers of Jesus. And so he was pursuing them, seeking after them. He, he began in Jerusalem, but he even says in, in a later thing that he even went to foreign cities. In other words, he was traveling about. He was aggressively going after people. He is... What Paul, Saul was an extreme guy. You know what an extreme guy is? Extreme guy is the guy that you get in the car and you're a little, it's a little warm out. And so he, he cranks the AC to four, you know, the highest thing. And it's like blow, freezing in your car. And then, and then, you know, you might mention, you know, it's a little chilly. And so he turns it off and turns on the heat or something. It's extreme guy. And they're always guys. It's <laughs> Saul's extreme guy. If he's going to do something, he's doing it to an extreme. And he is aggressively pursuing Christians to either kill them or bring them to be killed. He wants 
to rid the world of this false religion in his mind. Verse 3, now he went on his way. He approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling into the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? There's several interesting things happening there. He's coming along and then all of a sudden this bright light happens and sometimes people try to explain away what this was. You know, maybe he had an aneurysm. Maybe he had some sort of epileptic uh, seizure. I had epilepsy as a child. This was not an epileptic seizure. This was not an aneurysm. His life, as a result of this, his life, his life radically changed. We can tell lots of times by uh, people say things, but it's not until they do things and put their life on the line that you know that what they say, they truly believe. There's no question in the world that Paul's life changed that day. His life changed. And there was this flash of light around him. And he falls to the ground. And then he hears this interesting thing. Saul, Saul. Always for emphasis when you see a double like that. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, the persecution of the Jews did not begin in the 1930s. It's been happening for thousands of years. It's horrible. Saul would have been sensitive to such a term. Persecution? I don't persecute. People persecute me. What are you saying, persecution? I'm not persecuting anyone. I, I, I am doing the work of God here. The work of God isn't persecution. How can you say I'm persecuting? Why are you persecuting me? You know what's also interesting about this <clears throat> is that if you're ever persecuting a Christian, I want you to know that you are not simply persecuting a Christian, you are persecuting Jesus alongside of him or her. If you've ever mocked a Christian for being a Christian, you have mocked Jesus as well. And the flip side of that is that if you are a Christian who has been mocked, who has been persecuted, you do not go alone. Jesus is standing beside you, supporting you, walking with you through that. When we persecute Christians, we persecute Christ. And if you are being persecuted, Christ is is with you in the process. Paul, or Saul says this, Who are you, Lord? He uses the word Lord there. could easily be translated Sir. But everybody seems to agree. They're all on the same page. He's not saying Sir, Lord. He is saying God, Lord. Now, isn't that interesting? Here's a guy who has devoted his life to the study of the Scriptures and to the study of Yahweh and to following Yahweh. And now he asks the question, who are you, Yahweh? I appreciate his honesty. Who are you, Yahweh? And Jesus answers, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And he goes on, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are 
to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. You know, it's a lot of question. What, what did they see? Who were these other guys? These other guys, guides were most likely the temple guard. They would have had two main jobs for them. The first and the lesser job was to protect Saul as he travels about. It was dangerous. These roads were dangerous places. But these guys were packing heat for a reason. They had long spears and they had knives and they were ready for a fight. And the reason why is because when Saul would show up at these churches and show up at these cities, he'd come to Damascus and he'd find Christians. And he, he can't just say, you, come with me. It wouldn't work. But if you got somebody there packing heat, they can enforce what Saul is trying to say. And so they get, they're there for Saul's protection, but also to enforce what Saul is going to tell them to do. And so they saw something. Something happened. They saw Saul fall to the ground. They heard some noise. There's some debate of whether or not they heard the words of Jesus or if they just heard some rumblings. They didn't know what was going on. So they grab him. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. He was completely blinded. So they led him by the hand and brought him in Damascus, into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Saul, I am sure of this, was a complete control freak like me. I, if I go on a trip with friends, I want to be the one with the keys and drive. I, I mean, my wife is already used to it. That when I, and she's like, uh, were you... <laughs> Were you frustrated you weren't able to drive? Yes, you know. It's pathetic. I think Saul was the same way. He was used to being in charge. He was used to being in control. And he couldn't even walk down the street. I think God ever comes down into our lives and slaps us around just to wake us up. He needed something Radical. To break him from what he was doing, from what he was seeing, from how he was living. You need to realize, Saul, what you're doing. You are no longer in control of your life. I am taking it all away. So that you can't even walk down the street on your own. So he doesn't eat for three days. He's so upset. Now here the, we change scenes a little bit. We take our eyes off of Saul and we look at another guy named Ananias in verse 10. Now there's a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Isn't that amazing? This is very early on in the church and there, is already, there are already disciples in Damascus. There are already Christians going throughout the Roman Empire. It's, it would have been amazing to be a part of that, wouldn't it? So here we are all the way in Damascus and there's this guy named Ananias who's a Christian. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? Ananias is quick to answer. He said, here I am, Lord. It's like, whatever you need me to do, I'm here for you. Until he hears what the Lord wants him to do. 
And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. In Damascus at this time, my understanding is there's a bunch of curved roads. Except for one. It's called Straight. So he says, go to the straight road. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. You think, do you think Jesus is trying to fool Ananias? You think he's maybe thinking to himself, I'm not going to say Saul of Tarsus. Everybody knows that guy. I'm going to say there's this guy from Tarsus. By the way, his name is Saul. No. If, that was not the plan. Ananias knew who this guy from Tarsus named Saul was. Jesus goes on, For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias, that's you, come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Simple enough, right? You're hanging out. Jesus comes to you in a vision. Says, I want you to go down to uh, Central. There's a house there. I want you to go inside that house. And there's a guy. You lay your hands on him. He's blind. He's going to regain his sight. Cool? Cool. All right. We'll see you. That's not what Jesus said, though, was it? You got to go to this guy named Saul of Tarsus. And Ananias, right off the bat, is like, excuse me, who? Lord, verse 13, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. To your saints in Jerusalem, he's done these things. And here, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. What do you mean, him? Not Saul. Isn't this how we feel about people all the time? We see somebody and they are so bad. And maybe we'll, we'll tell him about Jesus. Hey, let me tell you about Jesus. He's a good guy. He died for you. Okay, great. Let's move on. But in our hearts, we don't ever believe that God could actually save this guy or this girl. We don't actually believe it. What do we do? We look for the good person that's already close to being like Jesus. Because we think, well, they're already being pretty good. You know, if we just tell them about Jesus, then they've got a good reason to be good. We, we forget that God can take the lowliest of lows and pull them up out of the pit. And not just, not just save them from their sin, but do amazing things with them. Because Jesus goes on. He says, he is, go. First he says, go. The Lord said to him, go, go. It's an imperative. It's a command, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. What do we think? We think to ourselves, this person that's so bad will never choose Jesus. And now there, you're on to something. You're right. But Jesus just might choose them. Jesus just might choose them. Then look out. Then look out for what he's going to do from that point on. 
But it's not going to be easy. He says in verse 16, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. He said, Brother Saul. Did you guys catch that? Anybody catch that? He said, Brother Saul. He didn't come up to him and say, hey, you jerk who killed my friend Stephen. Hey, you, you pompous, arrogant, loser, worthless scum of the earth who've been pursuing my brothers and sisters in Christ and killing them. He said, brother Saul. You guys want to talk about reconciliation? You want to talk about peace? You know, liberals have ideas on how we do that. Conservatives have ideas on how we do that. We'll throw it all out the door. It's the gospel, friends. It's Jesus that changes lives. It's Jesus that brings reconciliation. That's what brings peace. Not man-made ideologies. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. They can change people to turn a murderer into your brother. So Ananias departed, laying his hands on him. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. He was changed. He was new. There's this awesome passage, there's this awesome verse in the scriptures that you probably have heard of that says, if, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, the old man is dead, the new is alive. Who wrote that? Saul of Tarsus. Is there anybody on the face of this earth that knows that as well as this man did at this moment? He understood He was new. He was changed. God was ready to use him in amazing ways. Let's see what happens. Verse, second half of verse 19 says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all, heard, all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this man, the man who made havoc in Jerusalem, of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. You see, I grew up in a family that went to church I didn't know the gospel, but I did go to church and I heard about Jesus and I learned about Jesus and I learned the stories of the Old Testament and I learned all about this stuff. So that when I became a Christian, I was able to run with it. it, it all of a sudden, it started making sense to me. All of a sudden, all these things that, that were just fun stories be, be, were opened up in new and exciting ways. And here... If that was true for me, imagine what it was like for Saul of Tarsus. 
who is one of the foremost experts on the scriptures in the world. Imagine what it was like for him once he started saying, oh, this makes sense. I get this now. Look at this, look at this, look at this. And he began to prove through the scriptures, that is what we call the Old Testament today, through the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. It was a paradigm shift in his life. Oh man, I would love to have been there for that. Oh, how would I... That would have been exciting. He probably saw things that others didn't even begin to see. Oh man, that would have been great. Excuse my sudden excitement at imagining that. Verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. I think this is our fear, isn't it? You know, maybe we're thinking to ourselves, you know, if you're sitting here today, maybe you're not a Christian and you're thinking to yourself, I'm thinking about being a Christian, but I don't want to be a Christian because if I become a Christian, all my friends are going to hate me. They're going to make fun of me. Or in Saul's case, they're going to try to kill you. It's probably not going to happen that they're going to try to kill you, but it's going to feel like it. And so you've got to ask the question, is this worth it? I think he would have asked Saul of Tarsus, he would have said, undoubtedly, it's worth it. Undoubtedly, it was worth it. They plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. And they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples, he already has disciples. This is a guy off and running, you know, extreme guy. His disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Here we are again. I love the apostles. You know why I love the apostles so much? I mean, there's the obvious reasons for loving the apostles. But the other reason why I love the apostles is because they were so clueless like I am. You guys just finished studying Luke. So I, you just, it's just story after story after story of how the apostles were just completely clueless. And it gives me so much hope, really. <laughs> they, too, failed to see the possibility of Jesus changing somebody like Saul. But Barnabas, one of my heroes in the scriptures, Barnabas is incredible. Read about Barnabas. But Barnabas, should say, stuck his neck out for him, took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. This guy's legit. God has changed this man. You need to welcome him because God is about to do amazing things in his life. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, that is Greek-speaking Jews. But they were seeking to kill him. 
And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplied. So ends the story of the conversion of Saul Tarsus. What an amazing story. That God took this, this man, this disgusting, this horrible, deplorable man and redeemed him. And his life changed. Now I wish that I could stand up here and say to you right now that that night as I walked through the school and I walked through that classroom with the lights flashing around me and making that phone call to my parents would have scared me straight. I wish that my story could could end there in a sense of that sort of lifestyle. Then everything turned around and everything was good and then I changed who I was, but the answer to that is no. My life did not change that day. I just got better. I got better at lying to my parents. I got better at avoiding the authorities. I got better at being bad. I was changed, but for the worse. And it was interesting, some years later, I, I won't go through all the gory details of my life, but some few years later, I was a junior in high school, and I was talking to a buddy of mine named Todd, and Todd was a Christian at the time. Now, I, I didn't know that. I don't know if I could even explain to you what a Christian was. I think I thought I was a Christian, and I was talking to Todd, and I said something that shows more about what was in my heart than the things that I did. And I said to Todd, I said, Todd, you know, I've come to a conclusion. He said, what's that, Mike? I said, I think the only way to get ahead in this world is to step on as many people as you possibly can. And he looked at me, and he said, hey, you should come to camp with me. <laughs> and I think my answer was something like, are there going to be hot girls there? <laughs> that camp is run by a ministry called Young Life. So you're familiar with Young Life. It's a great, great ministry outreach to high school kids. And I had been to what was called Young Life Clubs before, and I had heard about Jesus and heard the gospel, but it never meant anything to me. And I went on this camp trip, and there I was told about my sin, which I didn't really need to be told about. I was pretty familiar with it. And I, but I was told about Jesus, and I was told that he died on the cross for my sin. And I was completely blown away completely blown away by what I heard. And there's a point towards the latter part of the week where it's called the 20 minutes. And if you, you can do whatever you want with that 20 minutes as long as you don't bother anybody else. I mean, you could uh, 
play tic-tac-toe with yourself. You can pray. You can do whatever you want. As long as you don't bother anybody else. And you know what I did with my 20 minutes? Bawled my eyes out. Because all I could think about during that whole time was that I was the one that put Jesus upon that cross. And I was right. I put Jesus upon the cross. I was right. The title of this sermon is Chief of Sinners. It's not in reference to Saul of Tarsus. It's in reference to me. I am the chief of sinners. I am. And you might be thinking to yourself, I wish the leadership of this church would not choose the chief of sinners to come and fill the pulpit. I am the chief of sinners. But God reached down into my life and smacked me over the head and I was blinded for a moment. Then he allowed me to see. He allowed me to see forgiveness. He allowed me to see grace. He allowed me to see a newness of life just like Saul of Tarsus. There's this great story in Luke, and I, and I don't want you to turn there. I want you just to listen. I want you just to think about it. I won't even tell you where it is in Luke, so you're not tempted. And since you've been studying it, I'm sure you're very familiar with it. But one day, this Pharisee invites Jesus over for a meal, and he goes, Jesus goes. And while he's there, this woman comes. She's referred to as a sinful woman. She was a prostitute. People gave her money. She gave them her body. She was a sinful woman. Indeed. But she came to Jesus and she she came up behind him, standing behind him at his feet. She, she was so humbled before Jesus, she didn't feel like she could even be in front of him. Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kiss his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Bad news, Pharisee, he is a prophet. And he knows that she's a sinner. And he knows what you just thought. So he turned to him and said, let me tell you a story. There's two guys. One has a huge debt. One has a small debt. They're both forgiven. Who appreciates it more? The guy with the bigger debt. 
Exactly. He who's been forgiven much loves much. He who's been forgiven little loves little. And you know what he did then? He turned to that sinful woman and he said, Your sins are forgiven. What's the difference between the sinful woman and the Pharisee? Nothing. She just understands her sin better. What's the difference between us and the Pharisee? I don't know. Do you understand your sin? Once you understand your sin, you will relish in God's grace. You will rejoice in God's grace. You will treasure God's grace. You will live in God's grace. It's not until we understand that we are sinners who are forgiven. And maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking to yourself, can I have that? Jesus can say to you, your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we do not begin to understand the depth of your grace. We cannot even begin to fathom it. So Lord, I pray for each of us. Show us our sin, not so that we might feel bad about ourselves. Show us our sin so that we might rejoice in your forgiveness. So that it might be your forgiveness that drives us in how we live. That it might be your forgiveness and your mercy and your grace that gets us up in the morning. That gets us to share the gospel with others. That gets us to love the people around us. That gets us to, to come up to those people that we want to just say they are sinners and they are lost and they are hopeless. And we can say with great hope that there is a gospel of Jesus Christ that can redeem you. May that be the thing that drives us, Lord. We pray this. In that name that gives us that hope. The name of Jesus Christ. Amen.